This is Judaism from the Ground Up, episode one. It was for this reason that man was first created as one person, to teach you that anyone who destroys a life is considered by scripture to have destroyed an entire world, and anyone who saves a life is as if he saved an entire world, and also to promote peace among the creations that no man would say to his friend, my ancestors are greater than yours, and also to express the grandeur of the Holy One, blessed be he, for a man strikes many coins from the same die, and all the coins are alike. But the king, the king of kings, the holy one of blessing, strikes every man from the die of the first man. Yet no man is quite like his friend. Therefore, every person must say, for my sake, the world was created. Mission of Sanhedrin. <clears throat> In the beginning, there was order. God had created the heavens and earth. He had divided light and darkness, sea and dry land, and put into effect the laws that govern nature, created each animal with its instinctual drive to survive and thrive, each plant with its angel ordering it to grow. All the clockwork had been wound, the mechanisms governing the world put into place. God did not want order. Here we get into some tricky theological ground. If God does something, does that mean God needed to do it? Does God need anything? And is saying so limiting God's omnipotence? These are good questions. It's hard to do philosophy without answering these questions. But that said, we press on, and we can notice something about how God acts in Chumash and act accordingly. A number of times, not only does God allow human beings to argue with God, which itself is pretty interesting, God seems to want to want to be argued with. Explicitly, when it comes to Avram and Sedom, Hashem says to himself, Kiviachol, uh, I cannot hide what I am doing from Avraham, and therefore I must tell him so that he can react. Implicitly, when it comes to Moshe after the sin of the molten calf, because Chazal look at Hashem going, now leave me alone so I can destroy them, as Hashem sort of passive-aggressively telling Moshe to argue with him to save Bnei Israel. A tradition that continues until this day. Uh, Chazal even say that Noah is faulted for not arguing with Hashem to save the generation of the flood. So let us posit the following, and let the theological die fall where it may. God created human beings to have someone to argue with God, to push back on God's plans for the world, to engage in a conversation. It is for some reason essential to God's plan for the world that he encounters pushback. Now, this is a hell of a statement, and I've had a hard time coming up with something to write here that justifies this. Perhaps this is because truth is only available through dialogue, and God, Kivyachal, requires dialogue to access truth. Or to go a little deeper, perhaps this is because God created the world in time, and God's outside of time, so what God is looking at is at a, at a perfected world. And uh, for, some, for some reason, a perfected world entails evolution towards that point. Maybe because truth is arrived at dynamically by pushing and pulling by different forces until consensus is found, pendulum swinging back and forth until they reach equilibrium. In this view, God couldn't have just created a perfect world God, created, uh, God needed to create a world that would have become perfect over time. But order is stable, and it cannot change. And without change, it cannot arrive at truth and perfection dynamically. 
like we've said with dialogue or you know perfection over the course of time right both of those both of those things require change but in order for change to happen things that disrupt order are necessary you need events that force changes in plans that disturb stability and make things move and progress in other words the thing that was lacking after God had finished his first creation of the world was chaos. Now, a little word on chaos. I don't mean chaos just as, like, what happens when you leave a middle school classroom without a teacher. I mean it in the sense that has come to be understood scientifically, okay? So, uh, if I'm getting this wrong, uh, I'm not a scientist, uh, and I accept any, uh, you know, corrections on this, but I did read the book on the subject. But uh, just to explain to uh, lay readers or listeners, uh, so you know the whole expression about a butterfly's wings flapping in Brazil causing a hurricane in Texas? So it turns out that's not just a nice little metaphor about how, you know, a little thing could have a big effect later on. That's pretty close to factual. Uh, it's actually from the title of a paper written by a man named Edward Lorenz, who is a meteorologist uh, for uh, the U.S., uh, something or other, army, I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't do the research there, I guess. Uh, stationed in Japan, <clears throat> and he's credited with inventing what's now called chaos theory. When he noticed that predicting the weather is actually, this is going to be crazy, uh, predicting the weather is actually really, really hard. Uh, now, you know this because you've seen meteorologists say things that didn't come true, but I don't think you I don't think people usually understand how difficult it is to predict, predict the weather. Let's say you surrounded the Earth in weather forecasting satellites and like literally surrounded it. Every, uh, each satellite is a millimeter away from each other. And they all have perfect instruments, and they're all able to uh, take uh, measurements of every single thing that could affect the weather. Uh, do you th would you be able to predict the weather uh, for months in advance? Turns out, no. The best you can do with such a system, which, again, uh, does not exist and would require a lot of money to exist, is a couple of weeks. Now, why is this? We know the laws, the, the way that, uh, you know, physics work, uh, which are more or less stable on Earth. Uh, I'm not real into quantum physics or whatever. I just know that, like, the bigger or smaller you get, whatever. But uh, we know the, you know, how air pressure works. We know how, uh, you know, uh, colds and heat and, you know, the laws of gases and whatever. Why can't we just plug those into a computer and, and you know, find out what's going to happen? So it turns out Edward Lorenz tried doing this but there would be little variations each time, right? Uh, even in within that one millimeter gap between satellites, there could be a butterfly flapping its wings. And that creates, you know, a variation that is perpetuated in the next thing that happens. And the next thing that happens, think about uh, the way that uh, if you're doing, if you, uh, this, this is the way that I related to it. Um, getting a question wrong in a math test where you get like a single thing wrong in the first steps of like solving an equation and then like the whole thing goes off and therefore you get no points and then there and then you end up with a 44 on the test and which you can't show your parents right uh little mistakes have big consequences we know that intuitively but what edward lorenz pointed out is that that is uh 
you know, true of the weather. It's true of, you know, lots of different things. Uh, and he actually, like, turned it into a theory, right? Um, so the point is... Uh, Even in a stable, orderly universe, even where there's physical laws, uh, you know, that, that govern things, even when you have, you know, things have been set up in ways that are, uh, even if you have like a bunch of equations that work out the same, same way every time, small variations, small, small var uh, little variations affect the outcome and affect and ruin your plan, so to speak, right? So what I'm saying here is that God created a stable, orderly, and static universe, as detailed in the first paragraph, which is notable for, uh, I, I like to say, it's notable for how boring it is. It's not like a creation myth of the, uh, the surrounding cultures where it was like a big fight and a big battle and, you know, defeating the forces of chaos or whatever. It's God created a stable, orderly, and static universe. First day is this, second day is this, right? Uh, but he needed something to introduce variation into the system, uh, who would be given free will to flap their tiny little proverbial wings and create hurricanes. Um, by the way, it's worth mentioning uh, that part of the findings of chaos theory, once you go past Lorenz, is that even chaos, even the things that uh, you know are the result of small little variations, uh, those themselves have patterns in predictability. Uh, if an example would be that uh, uh, Benoit P. B., uh, B. Mandelbrot found that the pattern for like cotton prices uh, seemed random, but over time it just look it looks the same no matter how far you zoom out. I don't know if that sentence made sense over audio, but whatever. Uh, what I think that means is, uh, and hopefully, if you're not, if you're right now listening to this and going, "Oh wow, this is pretty heretical," uh, God's plans being ruined. What? Uh, even in allowing chaos into the world, God is still ultimately in control and guiding the process and knows where it's headed because there's a pattern to it, uh, in ways that are often not apparent except for those looking. But the important thing that I'm trying to say here is, God creates an agent of chaos. So there's an idea in Judaism, officially coined by the Arizal, the Revisa Gloria in the Lurianic Kabbalah, but I'd argue, and you'll see my argument as this goes on, uh, I'd argue it goes back later, even if the term Tzimtzum is not applied to it. Uh, yes, the term is Tzimtzum, okay? Contraction. That in order to create the world, and this is hard to wrap your head around, but just go with it, right? God needed to contract himself to create space for it, because otherwise it would be just be God all-encompassing, right? And in order for the world to exist, God had to contract himself to create, spa to create space for it, right? Uh, the world needed space to exist, and uh, otherwise God would... You, you get the point, right? The way I understand that is that God contracted God's self, retreated from the stable order that God has had established, his plans, so to speak, his order, and created a space in, a space in which God's plans could be ruined by an entity different from God but in, and imbued with free will. Right? Something that could argue back, something that could ruin plans. God could not let order remain stable for the reasons that I've tried to explain, probably unsatisfactorily, but whatever. God needed something that would push back when engaged in discussion. So God created human beings. 
And through that interaction with humanity, through a discussion in which both parties allow themselves to be changed, Kivyachal, again, we're on shaky theological ground here, uh, but this is just something that emerges from the text, and I don't think necessarily you always have to make things theologically sound from a you know, logic perspective if it's you know, based in the text. And it appears clear that you know, prayer, uh, the text assumes that prayer changes God's mind. It appears clear that like, God engages in conversation with Moshe, right? So however that works theologically, uh, it, there are discussions in which both parties, God and man, allow themselves to be changed. Uh, in response to the other, and they would both seek to find the ideal balance between chaos and order, stability and change, and creativity and rules. So, God created humanity in the image of God. What does that mean? Humanity has the ability to plan, to create, to marshal resources, to implement their vision of what the world should be, as God had when God created the world. If every other human being is created in the image of God, though, then I too must retreat from the order I wish to establish to allow others to exist. And both of us must allow the possibility that through dialogue with another human being, through being confronted with their perspective, their ideas, and their vision of order, my own plans might be changed. I have to allow space for the chaos of others. That interaction with others must also strike a balance in which both parties are respected and heard, so that on one hand, neither party is forced to abandon their vision of order entirely, but on the other hand, changing that vision is a genuine possibility. Thus, the rights of an individual in Judaism are really based on two things. Number one, my right to have plans, my right to have a vision of order, and the rights of others to change my plans, their right to be the chaos of my order. So Adam is created alone to teach us that destroying a life is like destroying a world. That each person has a vision of order totally unique to them, a vision of what the world looks like uh, that they want to implement that's totally unique to them, and in the absence of others existing, would be implemented. But Adam is also created alone to remind each individual that they're all descended from Adam. That everyone is, like you, imbued with a unique perspective, their own unique coin imprinted by God, and that all those visions of order are, in theory, equivalent. Okay? This is not to say that every opinion, no matter how horrific, must be treated as valid, only that each person is provided with a unique vision of order, one that is suited for the task they are put on earth for. It's the interaction with other people, the vying of competing visions of billions of individuals, each guided by a certain vision of order they are trying to implement into reality, it's in that striving, in that you know, discussion, in that trying to get consensus, the balance is struck, and each individual is actually integral to that process. No individual ever succeeds at fully implementing their own vision of order. Other people exist in the world, and you can't uh, you know, implement a vision of order that entails others not existing. Right? Other people exist. They have their own things. Right? It's the pushing and pulling of all individuals trying to implement their ideas that the struggle to find the balance between chaos and order happens. Now, why does God create people as individuals with different attributes? All this pushing and pulling seems very inconvenient and inefficient. So let's take it a little bit down to earth, if that was a little bit too abstract for everybody. Uh, <clears throat> God has created us as individuals because uh, society needs different kinds of people to run. As a corollary of that, we have different opinions and qualities, 
suited to our own different tasks. So there's a good Gemara about this. Uh, it's in Brachot. Um, I don't know why I didn't provide myself with a daf in my notes here. Uh, I always forget which daf it is. Whatever. Hu haya omer, adam harishon ashamasa pad lechol, harash vizara vikatsar vaf, the Emer Vidash Vizara Uvarar Vitachan Vihirkin Vilash Vafa Vakar Kachal Vani Mashki Mimotsi Kalelu Mitukanin Lefanai Vihama Yigiot Yaga Adam Harishan Achamatsa Beged Lilbosh Gazaz Vilibain Vinipates Vitava Varag Vakar Kachmatsa Beged Lilbosh Vani Mashki Mimotsi Kalelak Mitukanin Lefanai Kol Umoshok Dot Vot Liftar Beti Vani Mashki Mimotsi Kalelu Lefanai so this is a, uh, a quote from Ben Soma, right? <clears throat> he would say, <coughs> How much effort did Adam, the first man, exert before he found bread to eat? He plowed, sowed, reaped, sheaved, threshed, winnowed, separated the grain, ground the grain into flour, sifted, kneaded, and baked, and only after all that he ate. And I, on the other hand, wake up and find all of these prepared for me. How much, effort, how much effort did Adam, the first man, exert before he found a garment to wear? He sheared, laundered, combed, spun, and wove, and only thereafter he found a garment to wear. And I, on the other hand, wake up and find all of these prepared for me. Members of all nations, diligently come to the entrance of my home, and I wake up and find all of these before me. Okay, so let's explain that a little bit. We've already spoken about humanity being created alone, and here Benzoma points out something counterintuitive. Adam, created alone, was unable to be an individual. Why? Why not? Because he didn't exist in a society. If he wanted bread, he had to do the farming, the milling, the baking, all by himself. If he wanted clothes, he had to herd sheep, shear, launder, etc., etc. You can read the quote all by yourself. Uh, if Adam had, say, wanted to be a basketball player, he would be unable to, not just because basketball didn't exist yet, but because he had to do all these things just to eat and clothe himself. Individuality can only exist when society creates niches for individuals to occupy with their unique qualities, and people are motivated to fill those niches because they, they have their drive to implement their vision of order. And as long as everyone can accept that their vision of order must be moderated <coughs> and tempered by others, everything works. Each individual has their own perspective, their own qualities, and brings those to the table in discussions. Each individual also knows that their own perspective is limited by having experienced only a small slice of reality, as well as their own innate traits that influence their vision of order, and is able to recognize that to get a better sense of reality, they need to listen to others and see the world through as many eyes as possible. Truth emerges from everyone putting their perspective out on the table, coming to consensus based on the reality that has been drawn by putting everyone's small slice of reality together. Right? Picture everybody standing in a circle. They're all seeing like one slice of the circle. The best way to figure out like what <coughs> they're, everybody is seeing is to put everybody's viewpoints together. <coughs> but what if I decide my vision of order, being better than everyone else's, deserves to be implemented without any sort of discussion or coming to consensus to assert not just this is what I'm seeing, but this is the whole thing. The only way to really implement your vision of order without discussion or building consensus is by force, by the exercise of power. This is bad. By exercising power, you are implementing your vision of order based on your own 
limited perspective, and not respecting the right of others to limit and moderate you. Things become unbalanced. The needed perspective of others is missed, and our picture of reality remains incomplete. <clears throat> Without respect for others' perspectives, society erodes, as the niches that have to be filled by people different than you remain empty, because you're in, uh, you have power over them. A drive to implement your vision of order becomes oppressive and intolerant of anything that doesn't fit, and released by the bounds of accountability to others, it becomes a desire to dominate others, to prevent their own visions of order from changing yours, not allowing them to take part in the dialogue this society balances on. So that drive has to be checked. Not killed, because it's your desire to implement your vision of order that motivates you to do the things you're supposed to do. Depriving the world of your perspective is just the same outcome as depriving others from contributing their perspective. We want to see reality through as many eyes as possible. That includes yours. But it needs to be kept in check. Each individual must retreat from themselves and the vision of order to allow space for chaos from others. They must contract themselves. Essentially, power is the ability to do anything you want without opposition and to impose your vision of order on everyone. But nobody should be able to do anything they want without opposition. We must all be kept in check by the opposing ideas and agendas of others and retreat from ourselves to create space for others and allow chaos to balance our visions of order. One of the primary goals, I think, of Judaism and or, and or halakhic observance I don't know how or would work there, but whatever, uh, is to train individuals to create space that is not just about asserting your own goals. For example, all the laws involving food and drink, kashrut, brachot, having to make a musulman, all force us to center something other than ourselves when doing something that purely benefits yourself, right? When you eat something, nobody benefits but you. But when Jewish law forces me, to think about others when I'm eating, right? It's not just, I'm hungry, therefore I, uh, I grab the first thing that looks good. There are obstacles I have to consider. Is it kosher? What's the bracha? What kind of bracha achrona will I have to say? Do I have to wash? Do I have, uh, do I have a minion of people who washed, right? There's all these things that turn what could be just a single activity that benefits one person into something that is not self-centered. And in fact, when you consider Mizuman, right, uh, you have to have like you know three people or ten people to to say the uh, the grace after meals, the bracha krona together, right? You're turning something that could be singular into something communal, right? So it's not even just like you're centering God. You're also uh, you know, decentering yourself to allow for other people, right? All of this, and I think all of halakha is, uh, it's possible, is to train us to voluntarily center something other than ourselves in all our decisions, and to be able to resist the urge to dominate others, to self-limit for the purpose of creating space for others, to be able to accept that you will not, in fact, get everything you want, because you are not the only person in the world. And you only have your small slice of reality and your limited perspective. And why should your vision dominate? Right? There's a... When you keep... When you follow halakha, right? You're admitting that I don't have... 
have all the answers, and I don't, uh, and not everything I do is because I want to. It is because there is something else commanding me, right? Now, whether or not you think that there is a commander or whether or not you think the laws in, the, in question are good or bad, right? I think just the fact that Judaism forces us to decenter ourselves is good, right? There's a lot of self-centeredness in our society, and I like the fact that Judaism forces us to, you know, think about something other than ourselves, and what I said before about Simpson being a theme, the self-contraction, right? I think this shows up even before the term Simpson sort of comes into, comes into existence with the Arizal, right? It's a sort of a theme in the entire Torah, both in narrative and legal portions. We talked a little bit about Halakha, but narratively, like Avram almost sacrifices his son, but at the last moment pulls back. Moshe gets right up to the border of Eretz Yisrael, but, he, but doesn't get into Eretz Yisrael. David conquers Yerushalayim and, you know, establishes his kingdom and brings the Aaron to Yerushalayim, but stops before he builds the Beit HaMikdash. He cannot do that. All right? Six days you shall work. On the seventh day you shall rest. Six, year, six years you work the land. On the seventh you will rest. There's this back and forth. The In Hasidic terms, Ratz of Ashov. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because I only read these things. All right? Uh, there is a, you know, I will go ahead, right, and and try to implement my vision, but at the but there must be a limit. I must pull back at a certain point. There are things I want to accomplish, work I want to do, but I must seize when confronted with the great other, right? Even in Agadic sayings, even in you know rabbinic, uh, you know ethical sayings, right? There's a, a in Pirkei Avot. There's Ezehu Gibor Hakavish Yitzro, who is a Gibor, which means like a strong person or a hero. It's not a person who like, you know, conquers. Hakovish Yitzro, one who conquers his inclination, right? What, the, what that implies is not that you don't have an inclination, it's that you conquer it, right? You have the power to do something. You have the ability to do something. You've, you're able to go ahead and implement a bunch of it, but there's a point at which you refrain. And that comes back to this, you know, idea of Simpson. God restricts himself to create space for the creation of man, to disrupt his order with chaos. Man is created alone and similarly must restrict himself and his vision of order to create space for the chaos of others. But at this point in the story, there are no others. Is just man created alone. And it's not good for man to be alone, as I think we've established. How will man react? And I, I've been using man here on purpose, not just not as an accidental, like, exclusionary thing of uh, uh, gender thing, but I've been using man on purpose because this is the story. How will man react to the creation of another? I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say, not great, but that, that'll be next time. I hope this made sense.